And welcome everybody to the home edition of Crown Gridiron Nation. I guess this officially kicks off season 10 in a very unorthodox manner. Uh, speaking of unorthodox, there are my panelists, uh, Gord Randall, making sure that uh, no germs come in or go out, and uh, Mike Hogan, uh, beachside, making sure that he kills germs from the inside, drinking some sort of antiseptic. Uh, now, uh, let's take a look at why we were so excited going into the NFL draft. Two guys picked very, very high by NFL teams. Six foot four and a half, 238 pounds. Chase Claypool goes in the second round, 49th overall to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The former Abbotsford Panther is multi-talented. He's more than just a receiver, great football IQ, as he's shown on special teams. And selected in the fourth round, Neville Gallimore out of the Oklahoma program and really out of Ottawa, Ontario by the Dallas Cowboys. He joins J.P. Latasseur and Tyrone Crawford as the three Canadians on America's team. This is a guy that ran the fastest 40 at the NFL Combine in over 21 years for a guy over 300 pounds. Well, there you see them, Chase Claypool and Neville Gallimore. Let's first of all start with Chase Claypool. Uh, our show tracked him through his career at Notre Dame, working his way into being a starter uh, as a freshman, finishing his career as the most valuable player on the Notre Dame Fighting Irish last year. What does Chase Claypool have to do in terms of taking a very successful college career and turning it into a very successful professional career with the Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike? He has to beat Chase Claypool, period. End of story. Uh, I mean, we knew what he could do physically. He's big. He's strong. Uh, he's great in traffic in terms of making contested catches. And I think the, the one question that we all had was what kind of speed does he possess in terms of, you know, just flat out burning. And when he ran a 4-4-2 at the Combine, he put a lot of money in his jeans. Um, you know, that answered a lot of questions that maybe some people had about him. Uh, but he showed that he could he could absolutely burn it. And, you know, now he goes to Pittsburgh. He's got a, a very effective passer, obviously, in Ben Roethlisberger. And, you know, he's got other receivers around. Now you've got CC to go with Juju in, in Pittsburgh. I, I, I think for Chase Claypool to succeed at the next level, he's just got to beat Chase Claypool. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, receivers in NFL teams, what they're looking for in their players, it's more specialized than ever. And, and the Pittsburgh Steelers went out and got Chase Claypool in the second round to be Chase Claypool and to bring what he brings to the table. Uh, I do think he'll endear himself to uh, his new teammates with the kind of work that he does in the blocking game and in special teams in particular. Don't forget, the Pittsburgh Steelers in their DNA has always been, we are going to be a, a team that establishes the run and then we'll put it over the top. Uh, you know, James Conner had a fantastic year last year when he was healthy. They have a fantastic offensive line. That's what they do at their core. That's going to be step number one for him is, is to show that, hey, I can get after it in the run game. And then when we do air it out, we air it out. I have a little bit of concern with the quarterback situation there long term. You know, Ben Roethlisberger is coming off an, an injury to his throwing arm. Uh, you know, the Steelers, I think, are, are really hoping that he can bounce back and give him a couple more seasons. But the dude's in his upper 30s now. So a little concerned about that. But for Chase, 
uh, you know, focus on the strengths that he has. And then the one thing that came up in this in this process that he really still needs to work on is he was viewed in NFL circles as a guy that doesn't create a lot after the catch. Uh, and I do believe that uh, offensive coordinator Randy Fitcher in the Steelers will design plays to get him the ball where he doesn't have to create after the catch. But if he can show some ability to do that at the next level, that's kind of the missing piece to his game uh, as far as what NFL guys are seeing at this point that can really take him over the top. How important is it for his long-term prospects that the Pittsburgh Steelers have come out and said that he is not going to be a tight end in a Pittsburgh Steelers offense, Gord? Um, I mean, tight end is a much more fluid position than ever these days. And, and especially with teams liking to use multiple tight end sets, that line between a tight end and a wide receiver is more blurred than it's ever been. Uh, you know, you get this concept of a move tight end, a guy that lines up in two-point stance in the slot more than most things, uh, or is the second tight end as kind of a wingback position outside of a normal tight end and the blocking isn't quite as crucial there. Uh, I mean, who knows? There's nothing stopping the Steelers from using Chase Claypool in certain packages in a position like that. And, I mean, the the versatility there is something that can be a weapon for him too. So I, I don't know that – I think the tight end thing was kind of overblown a little bit because, like I said, it's just – I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take the Seattle Seahawks for an example, my favorite team and the team that I follow very closely. You know, they drafted two guys that – were listed as tight ends in this draft. And yet, at times, they've talked about both those guys already as as receivers. So, you know, th that line is is a lot more blurred than it ever used to be. So I don't know that it really matters too, too much. But I'll tell you what, if you have a guy that's running a 4-4-2 or hand-timed, I think he ran a 4-3-8. Like, if you have a guy that has that kind of speed, I'm sorry, that guy's a receiver. <laughs> no matter how well he can block, how big he is, that guy's a receiver. And he is going to be a matchup nightmare no matter where they put him. Yeah, same speed that uh, Calvin Johnson ran, and they, they are comparable. Uh, who would you compare Chase Claypool to in the history of receivers at, at, when you look at his potential uh, in terms of Pittsburgh Steeler receivers? Is he a Plaxico Burris? Is he a John Stallworth who was larger than most receivers back in the day but certainly doesn't measure up to him physically? Michael, throw that to you because I'll start with the older guy first when it comes to a Stallworth comparison? I would guess Stallworth would be the guy. I mean, obviously, he's a, he's a lot physically bigger than Lynn Swan and, and doesn't have that – he probably doesn't have the quickness dynamic or getting out of breaks. I mean, Lynn Swan was a special guy that way, and we're not going to put Clay, Chase Claypool in the Hall of Fame just yet. The, the one guy – and I, I know there's a negative connotation around the player now and the person now, but if you want to go back five or six years or however long it is now – maybe closer to 10, but Aaron Hernandez is a guy who, you know, was, was a receiver slash uh, tight end um, who was very effective. He, you know, you had the, the, the more prototypical tight end on one side of Gronkowski. And if you wanted to go to the double tight end set, you, you had Hernandez who he could line up in the slot as a wide out, as a tight end, as an H back. I think that a, a really creative coach in Pittsburgh can find a million different places to line up Chase Claypool. And he could be effective of all of them, whether, whether it's in the slot or whether it's inside. Gord, what does this mean for football in BC and getting new athletes into the game? I think it's really big. And what, what's crucial to this situation in terms of uh, benefiting BC football is that Chase Claypool is a BC grassroots football guy through and through. He's played in every branch of football in this province. He played community football in Abbotsford growing up. 
Uh, he's played in seven-on-seven organizations uh, with the Air Raid Academy uh, group, uh, so a training, a pretty prominent training group in this area. Um, and he played uh, public high school ball at uh, Abbey Senior Secondary. And, and you know, it, it's neat watching the draft and having. I mean, I live in Langley, BC, right now, and, and it just so happens that that's where Chase's mom lives now, and where he was watching the draft from. So there's Langley, British Columbia, being broadcast across ESPN uh, during the second day of the draft. I mean, that kind of pub is huge, uh, despite the fact that uh, some geographically challenged intern didn't seem too clear on exactly where Abbotsford was. Um, but uh, shining that light on what we do here. And, you know, I, I, I don't think a few people were like, oh, they're talking about it's like, it, like it's football Siberia. And I didn't think that they were at all, uh, you know, disrespectful in the way that they talked about things here and, and did a good job of telling, telling uh, Chase's story uh, when his name came up. But it, it's really big for things here because um, it promotes every level of football in this province. And, and I think that that's, that's great. Uh, so let's switch gears and let's look at the uh, second Canadian uh, that was taken high up. Neville Gallimore. Uh, I think some people may have been a little disappointed in that. I believe he was the sixth defensive tackle to uh, go in the uh, NFL draft. There, there was some buzz about him going, uh, going as high as the high second round. Some people even had him in. Uh, the the first round, but he fell a little bit. Do you think that the Dallas Cowboys got a steal where they picked him, Mike? Well, as as an Eagles fan, I hope not. <laughs> but you know, realistically, uh, Neville Gallimore is a great talent. I was I was surprised. I thought he was obviously a guy who was capable of going in the second round. I mean, he's got everything you want. Uh, he's got tremendous strength. He's got tremendous quicks on the inside. Um, you know. He, the, the thing that he's got to maybe be most aware of is, you know, if he thought he was in the spotlight in Oklahoma, try going one state down on Sundays. I mean, he's now playing for one of the most scrutinized teams, maybe the most scrutinized team on the planet. Uh, and, and the pressure is going to be on him there. But, you know, we, we talked about him all year and even back into last year, just because of the physicality that he brings. Uh, he's fast. He's ridiculously strong. And, you know, now he's going to be down on the defensive line in Dallas with another Canadian and Tyrone Crawford. So, um, you know, for him, he's going to have some familiar surroundings as well. As uh, CeeDee Lamb went down there, one of his teammates from Oklahoma, he was the first-round pick of the Cowboys. So I think that there's a lot of things really working in Neville Gallimore's favor to be a really successful pro. And, and, and most of all, it's his talent level. But, I, you know, I, I hate saying it, but I really think the Cowboys might be a really good fit for him. Gord, uh, great speed for a big man, uh, obviously knows how to lift in the uh, weight room, but uh, I, I think there were a couple of tests that he had at the combine, which uh, may have pushed him down uh, the draft a little bit. Uh, Three-cone drill in particular, where I believe he was uh, 23rd out of uh, 25 guys. Uh, is that a concern? And his his injury history a concern? It was great to see him get through this year and play a whole season, but he has had injuries in his past. Uh, yeah. I mean, every, there are a lot of guys by the time they get to this level that have injury red flags and, and he's one of them. Uh, I think the bigger concern is that his production numbers just weren't that, uh, that kind of jumping off the page level. Uh, and that's ultimately what I think prevented him from being attached to some of the top guys in this class is that, 
you know, the production numbers just weren't that high for him uh, across the board. We saw flashes. Uh, we've, we've seen fantastic world beater type games from Neville Gallimore, but it just wasn't every Saturday that he was going to be able to collect those countables. And, and ultimately, you know, teams are still looking at that kind of stuff on top of looking at the tools in the toolbox. And certainly the tools are very good for Neville Gallimore. You know, his testing profile shows you that he's a guy that should be trying to slash up field. And I think that that's kind of one of the things with him is that he uh, took on blocks a little bit too often as opposed to defeating uh, and splitting blocks. And, and that's, I think, something that they'll encourage him to do at this level and something that can make him really efficient. But, you know, the Cowboys have a deep rotation at D-line. Uh, he's not going to be a guy that's asked to play every down. Uh, and that's a good thing for him. And I, and I think that uh, having a guy like Tyrone Crawford in that same room, and uh, he's still a free agent at this point in time, but Christian Covington, uh, another Canadian, played there on the D-line last year too. So maybe they can bring him back as well. But um, you know, having, having Tyrone Crawford in that room, a guy that knows a lot about where Neville's coming from, maybe a guy he can connect to, and a guy that's been around the league for a lot of years, uh, I think makes that a good fit and a good place for him to flourish too. But man, the Cowboys had a really good weekend, which – surprises me given that uh, Jerry appears to have locked himself in a room on his uh, private yacht alone. Usually things go off the rails for them pretty quickly when he does that. But, uh, you know, C.D. Lamb, as uh, Mike said, fell to them in the first round well past where people thought he would go. And then Gallimore viewed by a lot of people as a really good value pick at that point too. Uh, and then they get a guy I really liked, Utah's Bradley Anne in the fifth round who probably should have gone well before that too. So uh, really good weekend for the Cowboys. And Gallimore's got a good fit on a good D-line group. You know, we talk about uh, the Canadians and the draft and uh, UDFAs. Uh, Let's talk, uh, while we have you guys here, uh, about uh, who are the winners. Uh, Pick a winner, pick a loser in the NFL draft. I'm going to throw it over to you, Mike, in terms of who you thought was a winner and who you thought was a loser Uh, team-wise. Again, I hate saying it, but I thought Dallas killed it. They knocked it out of the park. And, you know, that's frustrating as an Eagles fan. But, you know, you have to give credit where credit is due. Um, You know, the the more CeeDee Lamb kept falling and falling, you know, I was optimistic and hopeful maybe uh, that the Eagles were going to grab him. But he's dynamic. I mean, he's uh, he's a weapon. And, and, you know, they they address – uh, the secondary in the, in the second round, and then they address the D-line rotation with Gallimore, uh, who can be really effective. I think when they, when they use him, and, and Gordon mentioned the rotation, you know, you look at, uh, you know, the days of four down linemen with some backups, that's long gone. You know, even in the CFL with a limited roster, uh, you never see fewer than seven D-linemen dressed, and a lot of times it's eight or nine. So, you know, you have to have that rotation. Neville Gallimore is going to see the field a lot in his first year, and I would assume that they'll use him uh, more as a pass rusher than a guy maybe on short yardage. But he's uh, he's a guy that's going to learn. I but you know in, in terms of a win, boy, I thought I thought the Cowboys had a great draft. Uh, in terms of winners and losers, uh, Gord, you, are are you sticking with the Dallas thing that uh, that Mike's on, or do you think somebody did better? And, and somebody here, pick a loser in the draft for me. Okay, I, I have no problem picking picking both, but I will give you two winners uh, and two different teams than the ones that Mike talked about. So my two winners, number one, the Tampa Bay Bucks, uh, And I'm not going to reach out and include Rob Gronkowski in this draft class because I hate when people do that. Uh, but that was a good start to their weekend. And then things just kept rolling in their direction. Uh, they get Tristan Wirfs, a guy that some people had going as high as third or fourth overall, fall to them at uh, 13, I think they ended up taking him at. That was a steal of a pick for them. 
They get Tom Brady, a franchise tackle, which is my was my biggest concern about their offense going into this draft is everybody was penciling them in as a Super Bowl contender. And I went, whoa, hold on. That's one of the worst offensive lines in the league. They get him help on the offensive line. They get a running back to help out. And then they get Tyler Johnson, a guy from uh, from Minnesota, in the it was either the fifth or the sixth round on day three. Uh, a guy that is a pure slot receiver and is the exact opposite of what Mike Evans and Chris Godwin are uh, in a good way. Uh, a little skitterbug type of guy. And, and we've seen Brady have a really good history with guys like that and Julian Edelman and Wes Welker at their peaks. So uh, Tyler Johnson's a guy that profiles as a really good weapon for them too. I thought the Bucks had a fantastic weekend. Another team that did really well and is kind of flying under the radar in my opinion is the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, they had Isaiah Simmons, a guy who is so versatile on defense that a lot of draft prognosticators just classified him as an Avenger because they didn't want to pigeonhole him to one spot. He falls to them at, I think it was eight, uh, which is again, well after uh, where a lot of people had him going. And a lot of people have him as the best defensive player in this draft, not named Chase Young. Uh, So that was a really good uh, pickup for them. Uh, And then they have a guy I really liked in offensive tackle, Josh Jones from Houston, a guy who I thought should have gone on the tail end of the first round. They were able to get him in the third round. So, uh, it was a really good weekend for them, and unfortunately, uh, I hate to admit as a Seahawks fan, but the NFC West on the whole, and this includes the Seahawks, I think, but the NFC West on the whole had a really good weekend and got a lot better. Guys, that is going to be the best division in football this year. I'm going to put my name on that right now. Uh, all of those teams are, are pretty well managed at this point in time, and the, and the Los Angeles Rams, who people thought just over a year ago were a budding dynasty in this league, are now arguably the worst team in their own division. And that's a scary thought when you think about it. Yeah, I think. Me, sorry to finish my point because you want me to you want me to hate on somebody too. The easy slam dunk is the Green Bay Packers, and I have never seen such a flummoxing draft strategy from a team that was in the NFC Championship. They were a Final Four team last year with some pretty clear and glaring holes on that roster, and 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 all they were they they looked like that team that that was just a couple pieces away in the right spots. And they spent their first three picks on a backup quarterback that ideally won't see the field for at least two seasons. Uh, And then a running back uh, who will also be a backup because they have one of the better running backs in the league. Uh, And then a fullback in the third round. Uh, And and to be honest with you guys, like Matt LaFleur is very close to Kyle Shanahan. They got beat by San Francisco in that NFC Championship game. This, to me, honestly looks like they watched San Francisco's formula and they are freaking out and trying to copycat it. And I absolutely hate that strategy. And guys in one of the deepest receiving classes in 20 years, in most people's opinions, they did not draft a single receiver. That is flabbergasting. And, and it's, it's, being, it's being panned in every circle. I'm going to hop on that bandwagon too. I have no idea what they were doing in Green Bay this weekend. Yeah, that's what I was uh, going to break in with. I, if there was one loser, wasn't even a team. I think it was an individual, and I think his name is Aaron Rodgers. Uh, let's go to uh, UDFAs uh, from Canada. Carter O'Donnell leads the list, got a $25,000 uh, signing bonus from uh, Indianapolis to uh, go south of the line. Uh, O'Donnell, mean, ferocious. Talk to Chris Morris, his head coach at the University of Alberta. He will not shut up about him. You can talk about Cardinal O'Donnell with him for about half an hour. Uh, Gord, from an um, offensive line perspective, uh, from a CFL perspective, 
Um, how does this uh, affect where you would pick Carter O'Donnell uh, if you had the opportunity to pick him, knowing that uh, the NFL sent some money his way? Yeah, I think that's a really good question uh, because I, I believe the writing's on the wall for Carter O'Donnell to spend at least one year south of the line. Uh, so you're going to have to invest in potentially waiting for him uh, south of the line for a year. Now, we've seen some guys in this situation before. Jeff Gray is a guy that comes to mind for me in recent years who had his uh, had had made some money as a UDFA with the Green Bay Packers. I think he ultimately got drafted late in the first round. I don't remember the exact pick. Uh, and ultimately was back in the CFL for Winnipeg uh, two years later. So uh, that's a recent example of of where a guy like Carter O'Donnell might fall. But you may not get him back, and, and you you have to be prepared for that risk. Uh, you know, he's a guy. You know, our our friend a friend of the show, J.C. Abbott, uh, over at Three Down Nation, he he referred to Carter O'Donnell as the best offensive lineman to come out of the U Sports ranks since Laurent Duvernay Tardif, and and it's hard to argue with that. I mean. Uh, Gray may be an argument there, but he was very much a projection as opposed to product guy. Uh, you have Brett Jones, who ended up going to the CFL first. He didn't stick in the NFL right away. Uh, those are the only guys I can think of that are even in that conversation. So you know, this is a this is a very very uh, high potential prospect. Um, and if you're a CFL team, that later part of round one is a fairly sweet spot in that that's usually where you're getting the deeper rosters. And I believe Calgary has two picks in the first round. That might be a spot for them. Uh, you know they love to load up on national offensive linemen. That might be somewhere where they invest in him. Otherwise, yeah, I, I don't know how far it'll push him. I cannot see him getting out of the second round because the package is just too enticing. I just don't know how far that's going to be. So Mike works with the Toronto Argonauts. So I got to be careful here. This is a really good sidestep, Michael. How does O'Donnell fit in with the Colts? Oh, nice. Thank you for doing that. Um, he, I, I can't see him not sticking. Uh, you know, they don't exactly have the best offensive line in the NFL. Um, they only addressed one draft pick in the in, in the five rounds, and that was in the, in the seven round, eight rounds. Danny Pinter in the fifth round was the guy that they picked. And then, um, you know, they, they, to date, they haven't signed any other offensive linemen as a, as a UDFA. So, um, you know, even if it's just for bodies in training camp, whether that's this year or next, I would expect him to stick around. And, you know, one thing I can say, uh, you know, going into the history of that spot late in the, in the round, the Argos have, have done that a couple of times in the last decade with the number nine spot, and they have the number nine pick this year we have the number nine pick this year um nick casher went in the nine spot and ended up spending his entire career in the nfl with the patriots uh, he spent five years there was a starting tackle all five years hurt his back and that forced his premature retirement and and, and also uh, in that same spot brian hunter uh, who last year won a super bowl ring with the kansas city chiefs so it's it, it really is a high risk high reward if you get a guy like gray who comes back or or a player in the NFL, not necessarily an old lineman, but anybody you pick that comes back and you get them late in the first round, in the second round, even in the third round, that becomes a major draft coup, but you're really rolling the dice. And I'm really curious because I don't know where he goes now and who's really going to stick their neck out because I think every, I would assume every team in the CFL knows how good this guy could be, but how much that signing bonus and the lack of old linemen uh, in terms of depth in Indianapolis is, is going to do to his draft position. So I'm like everybody else. I can't wait to see on Thursday. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to need to be a team in the CFL draft that doesn't have a lot of other glaring needs at national positions where they can afford uh, to invest in uh, in a guy that may not come to them right away, that they don't need that immediate help. There's a couple things that work in Carter O'Donnell's favor that I want to talk about, though. One of them Jim kind of alluded to, which is that he got money up front. He got a $25,000 signing bonus, which is a pretty good sum for a UDFA. Uh, it's certainly not nothing, and a lot of these contracts are coming with nothing up front. Um, but uh, he, that, that helps him. Another thing that helps him this year is with the circumstances we're going through right now, uh, this is not... Uh, you know, some people are going, well, why, why is this such a big deal? Well, this is that he is being signed already as an undrafted free agent. This is not like where we've seen a lot of the Canadians go to the New York Giants in the last couple of years as a mini camp invite. It is more than that. And there are no, there are not going to be these rookie mini camps this year. So, you know, it's a very different circumstance, but it bodes well for a guy like Carter O'Donnell. And I assume the next guy we're going to talk about, Rice and John, in that they have a contract to them at this point in time. This is not just hey, come down for a mini camp, we'll give you a look. They've got a little bit of a commitment already. That bodes well for their chances of sticking there for at least this next season. Now, I'm going to hold Rice and John for you for a second here, Gord, because I want to talk about Mark DeCroix, the defensive back out of the Montreal Carabins, who was also signed uh, as a UDFA. And I thought his stock might have plummeted a little bit when he didn't get the opportunity to showcase himself in the East-West Shrine game, but uh, Mike, measurables are measurables, aren't they? Oh boy, and, and you know, that got that alone got him a look down south. I mean, a 4-3-5 in the 40 when he had his pro days. If you look at all of the DBs uh, that were eligible for the NFL draft, he had the second fastest 40, and he had the fifth best vertical at 37 inches. He ran a, a great cone drill as well. So you, when you look at just the measurables alone, um, you know, that was going to open the door for him somewhere. What's going to hold him back is when you look at before his days in Montreal, um, and he's coming off another injury uh, suffered in the Vanier Cup. But you know, you look at a five-year span of his career at the CJEP level and his first year at Montreal, and he played five games in five years. Um, you know, he didn't play for one year because he didn't want to. Uh, he, he he missed an entire year with an injury. I mean, he's his background is not great. So in this case, with, with with the Green Bay Packers, they're looking at him, I would assume, as a long-term project. But if they see that his his background, and you know, he's up against guys who are coming out of factories who have been playing at a high level since the time they were five, um, this puts him a little bit behind the eight ball. But if they see enough in him as an athlete, a guy who could maybe uh, contribute on special teams right out of the gate, maybe this is an opportunity for him to stick in Green Bay. Other than that, you know, it might be a, a quick one weekend done if they don't like what they see because they really haven't invested much in this guy. Now, what about Rice and John, uh, Gord? You mentioned him just about a minute ago. Uh, it, it really paid off for Simon Fraser to have that game against Portland State and play up uh, in their non-conference game because he had uh, one of his biggest games of the season and I think really drew some attention to himself uh, playing for SFU and it always amuses me when one of my panelists gets into a bit of an argument on Twitter with his former head coach about what position he should be playing. Well, yeah, I, I, um, I, one of the things that I commented on is that he is uh, being treated as a tight end down there. Uh, and, and what the argument was around between myself, Thomas Ford and the aforementioned JC Abbott was 
what that means for Rice and John. And, and I'm of the opinion that it's, it's not going to be the easiest transition for him because this is a guy that's always been a wideout. He's never had to block in any significant fashion in his career. If they expect that to be a major part of his skill set, that's going to be an added level of challenge for him. They're of the opinion that it's not going to be as much a part of his job description the way they're going to use him. So we'll, we'll leave that in the wait and see category. I certainly hope that they're right about that more so than I am. But again, like I said, let's keep that in the wait and see category. But it, it bears mentioning that again, with the special circumstances we're going through this year, small school guys ended up on the short end of the stick with this. Uh, there was something like only nine guys drafted from below the FBS level, which is below the level of last year significantly. There was over 20 in last year's draft. Uh, and at the D2 and 3 level, there were only a grand total of three guys drafted. Uh, so get the small school guys did not have opportunities the way they did in the past to get their name out there. I think going down to the Hula Bowl in Hawaii did help Ryzen John's case, as well as that game against FCS Portland State. You know, Portland State had a guy uh, go in the last round, or go as an undrafted free agent uh, as well. And so people were paying attention to that film too. Uh, and the thing with Ryzen John, and, and this is an ongoing theme with these Canadian guys, is measurables. He's he's six seven. Uh, Coach Ford was telling me that he's bulked up to almost 240 pounds at this point in time. That's a good profile. And and you know I I talked about the Seahawks earlier. They drafted a guy with a very similar body type out of Stanford uh, in the fourth round. So you know there is room for guys with Ryzen John skill set in the league. Uh, he's going to have to develop the blocking thing quickly. But if he shows uh, the Giants that he's able to pick up where whatever role it is that they want him to do uh you know Ford suggested he'd be more of an h-back type I mean I suggest that he would fit into that second tight end uh in a wing spot not having to block in line as much and stretching guys becoming a matchup guy down the field um that that it'll be interesting to see whether he can carve something out uh and a lot like I said will depend on how he can adjust to a slightly different job description than what he was used to at Simon Fraser on top of the fact that he's jumping from the D2 level to the NFL level. It's far from unheard of, uh, but it will be a tall task for him. Now, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about what 2020-2021 holds in store for a football season. Will we even have football in the fall? Yeah, you are watching Crown Gridiron Nation. In British Columbia's Similkameen Valley, our partner, Sunny Dollywall, and his family grow and pack some of the finest fruit you will ever taste. Thank you, Sunny, for making Crown Produce fresh at its best. Welcome back to Crown Gridiron Nation, the home edition, of course. Uh, let's look forward to what uh, football may or may not be uh, in the fall of 2020 or the 2020-21 season. Uh, I, I wear the hat of president of Football Canada, of course, and we made the decision back uh, in March uh, to be the first national sports organization uh, to uh, draw a halt to games and practices and face-to-face -face meeting and group training. Uh, I think coming out on the, on the other end of this, it's going to be a whole lot more uh, complicated trying to get the uh, game up and going again at the amateur level. Uh, at the college level, let's start in Canada with U Sports first of all. And uh, and Mike, uh, what are the options uh, for for U Sports at this stage? Uh, because it, it comes down to funding, where there are some challenges with funding behind the scenes, with uh, a number of schools not charging uh, student activity fees uh, fees, which feed 
these programs. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, coronavirus uh, is, is, is going to compromise the, the, the length of the season, the training camps, the access to players at the start of the season. Your thoughts? Well, I'm like everybody else. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know what what 2020 fall schedule looks like in Canada. And, you know, you know, you hear Dr. Fauci say that, you know, there's no question in his mind that coronavirus is going to be around in the fall. Uh, It's a fact. And, you know, which league, which team, which athletic conference is going to take the risk of firing it up and and letting it go, knowing that the, the, the virus is still going to be around, you know, it's, uh, all it takes is one player to get sick and, and what happens and what waivers have to be signed uh, for a kid to play. And you talk about the financial ramifications. Um, you know, this Friday I was supposed to host the Laurier fundraising dinner. Uh, it's obviously been canceled. Same thing with Waterloo. Same thing with uh, Queens. Uh, three dinners I was going to host this year. And none of them are going to take place. That's that's a, a good chunk. That's a major fundraiser for those three teams. And, and most teams around the country have a dinner like that where they're going to raise a substantial amount of money for the program. Uh, football isn't cheap, um, but is football even going to be played this year? If it's not, what schools are going to hang on to football? Is there an opportunity that maybe football is lost from some schools? I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's a really, really uncertain future, and there's nothing we can do but wait because we don't control it. The virus controls us. Gord, on the uh, U-Sports side, uh, Mike pointed out a couple of fundraisers. Uh, I'm also thinking about uh, summer camps that some of these uh, programs run. Um, it, it's hard financially, especially in a couple of provinces. Uh, uh, we saw a flare shot up by the University of Alberta just last week uh, that they're compromised on all sides, especially with the provincial government cutting back uh, their contributions to universities. Uh, uh, how much will football be under threat uh, in this country on the college level? And will it look significantly different when it is played again? I think that in the short term, uh, football is going to be uh, very stretched and strained uh, by this this current situation to the point where it may make more sense for, for a lot of universities to not play uh, next season. Uh, if it's one of those things where they're going to have to jump right into a schedule, a full schedule. Now you may see a re- restricted schedule, uh, something limited to four or five weeks or something like that. I don't know. I, I don't know what it, what it can look like, but you know, the financial thing is definitely a concern. And you know, another, another example I think of is, is Lethbridge universities already cut announced they've cut uh, their hockey programs uh, because of funding issues. Um, you know, we know that these schools and these athletic programs often run on very tight budgets to begin with, and then you further strain that financial reality, and now you've got a problem. Uh, I do think that over the long term, it'll it'll recover to something that we see similar to this. But you know, football is a is a challenge in the nature of the sport. Uh, you know, baseball is is a different story as a sport that I could see coming back a lot sooner than football. But in football, uh, you are literally contacting your body against somebody else's like your your mouth and and nose which is you know we've discovered as a respiratory based disease is kind of where this is spread most you know they're going to be inches away from somebody else's and there's no way that you can change or control that uh and so just in that fundamental nature of how the game works i I don't know It, it it could be a while and and i just because i there's no way to control the environment and make it safer until 
we have pretty much completely eradicated this. And I, I just, I, I don't know how it happens. I think you'll see professional leagues come back before a lot of amateur leagues. And, and I'm counting the FBS level and the NCAA in that as well, in that, you know, the money and the business aspect of things is going to change the equation for them. You know, they, they need to keep going for monetary reasons and that'll be more of a factor for them. But uh, and in the university ranks in this country, it will not benefit most places financially to rush themselves back whilst taking a risk. And, and so, you know, it, it very well could be a while. And, and like I said, uh, U sports being on the smaller end of things, I think means that it's going to be a longer process than say, if we're talking about whether the sec is going to play football this fall. Mike, uh, many uh, American programs though really depend on their gate revenue uh, there's a lot of discussion about the NFL coming back to empty stadiums. That is not necessarily an option for the vast majority of NCAA football programs, is it? No, and I, th I think one of the major misconceptions there is uh, among some sports fans or the peripheral fan, probably not the person that's watching this show, uh, but, you know, everybody thinks that Saturday afternoon in the United States is is a game at Texas or a game at Notre Dame. And that's just not the case. I mean, for every major school, it's getting 60,000. You know, you've got a University of Buffalo. You've got some of the uh, some of the smaller schools uh, that we focused on this year, like uh, Ohio University and Nathan Work that aren't getting 70,000 people at every game. Uh, it's it's tough. I mean, and it's also I think in the states is is going to be weird to watch because, um, quite frankly, with some of the governments, the state governments down there, I could see some conferences playing simply because the rules of their state, especially in the south, it seems, are going to be a lot more lax than some of the state laws in the northeast, so, so to speak. So it it really is a mess down there. And with the, with the television money that comes into some conferences, not all, or an independent like Notre Dame, I, I mean, there's enough money where you could play in front of an empty stadium and probably break even. But uh, for the vast majority of schools, uh, their cut of the TV contract is nice to have, but man, they need those gates. and and some schools just aren't going to get that, and some states aren't going to let them play to begin with. And all it takes, what happens if somebody tests positive? What happens if you have a team that has four players test positive? Do you shut down the entire country again after you were uh, probably ridiculed in a lot of spaces for starting in the first place? I don't know. I, I think, again, we don't know, and we're going to have to see what the country looks like and the continent looks like come the end of July. It might be better. It might not be. Well, and the other thing too, that's, that's a reality for these, uh, these big American schools, even the ones that are in good shape with their football and basketball programs is that those programs subsidize the rest of the athletic department. Uh, and so where we're really going to see it wreak havoc if they can't go is not so much in the long-term viability of those programs, but in the fencing program, the gymnastics program, the swimming program, the track and field program, those programs that don't have the revenue uh, driving capability of football and basketball in the States are going to be the ones that really suffer. And, and I know that's not really our purvey on the show, but that is going to be the real shame of it uh, is that those, those programs are going to be the real victims of this whole thing uh, in those big schools in the States. Okay. First to you, Mike, second to you, Gord, this applies to both sides of the line. Is spring football a possibility? Mike? Ooh, I mean, honestly, I hadn't thought of that um, at the scholastic level. I did, that's something uh, that I hadn't thought of, but it could be. 
uh, why not? Um, you know, the, the stadiums are going to be available on Saturdays for the most part. There may be some scheduling conflicts, but, you know, you might be able to move some games to midweek or you might be able to move uh, some of the other spring sports around to make sure that you can share the stadium. But um, honestly, that's something I hadn't thought of. And, and maybe that would give up on this side of the border uh, more time to find a host for the Vanier Cup because we still don't have one for 2020. Yeah, hey, you know, you take a look at uh, spring ball, it, it, it's a, a possibility. But just as Gord mentioned, there are a number of sports that are going in spring uh, that, uh, that they would be up against uh, at, the, uh, at the same time. Do you see it working on either side of the border, Gord? No, I don't. Um, and uh, different dynamics that play on both sides of the border. Uh, in the States, basketball is a big barrier. Um, you know, March Madness, the month of March is basketball's thing. It's locked down. Uh, they will not want to step on that, I don't think. And it's going to be a situation where it's too much noise. On the Canadian side of the border, the biggest issue is going to be what you alluded to, which is facility usage. Um, you know, you have limited facilities anyway. And a lot of these, a lot of these uh, universities rely on reusing those football facilities for other programs when they're out of season. Uh, depending on the university, track and field, both soccer programs, uh, rugby, uh, some of them do balance with football in season already. But the more you pile into the same facility, uh, the more challenging that's going to be. And I just, especially for football, it's not that the time for football is required for games. It's that the time for football is required for practices. You know, that is a football program is essentially uh, locking down that entire facility for four hours a day by the time it's all said and done that's a huge chunk out of the schedule uh at the best of times uh and so you you pile more and more teams onto that if everybody's in the same season that's going to be a big logistical challenge that i don't know that our universities are, are equipped to handle and the other thing that i want to jump in here jim is uh, with the with the timing as well you know guys and girls graduate in in april when do you start the football season in january uh, if you started in late March, you're still going to have some problematic games weather-wise, which I guess would equate to playing in November. Uh, but if you start in March, March, April, do you keep kids around playing in, in May and June? Um, what does that do to their their need to raise money to go to school the next year for someone? Some of them will have graduated and be gone, players in their fifth year or uh, you know, some of the fourth years that don't come back. So it's problematic. You know, you, you kind of threw that at me and I hadn't thought it through, but uh, the more and more I think about it, the less and less sense that makes. Now, that, that being, that being said, there are, sorry, that being said out there, there are people uh, across the country that have discussed the prospect of spring football um, as a possible substitute for fall football. Gord? Well, I just, I can't imagine watching an opening day uh, opening night, maybe a Friday night in minus 40 in, in the pitch dark in Winnipeg. I just <laughs> can't see that happening. Uh, and, I, and I cannot see them extending uh, beyond their regular school year by more than a week or two. I just can't see it. You know, too many of these institutions value academics so highly. Uh, it's a very, very small window there, and I don't think it's viable. I think if we get to the point in time where the fall's wiped out, that most universities would, would uh, prefer to – uh, just just act, skip the year basically, uh, and it's it's unfortunate. I, I would feel really bad for especially the players playing right now. Uh, don't know if they get eligibility waivers or whatever. That's a that's a bridge we'll cross when we come to it. But I, I just I really don't see the viability of spring football. 
Okay, let's talk about happier things. The Cornish Award, uh, it will be presented on May the 6th on a live stream on uh, footballcanada.ca and cfof.ca. That's the Canadian uh, Football Hall of Fame's uh, website. And uh, we were uh, going to present it to, to the uh, winner uh, in his hometown before a spring game, uh, but we're going to be doing it from home, unfortunately, for obvious reasons. Uh, that brings me to discussion about Nathan Rourke, who uh, was neither drafted nor a UDFA. He is in the top 40 uh, quarterbacks in most rankings, somewhere in the uh, mid-20s to about the, the uh, 30 range uh, out of the top 40. Um, does not having mini camps really hurt uh, the, the ability for Nathan Rourke to find traction uh, uh, with a National Football League team uh, this year? I'll, I'll send that to you first, Gord. Very much so. Uh, he, he very much qualifies or profiles as a guy that would benefit from uh, having some eyes on him at a mini camp opportunity. What will sometimes happen to these guys is they may not stick with their original team in a mini camp, but other teams will see them in an NFL atmosphere and take a flyer on them too. Um, so I think he's going to have to, though something may trickle in in the next couple days, um, and J.J. Molson's another Canadian guy who's in the same boat there who is hoping for an opportunity, hasn't got one yet. Um, but I, I think those guys pretty quickly are going to have to start shifting their focus to the CFL uh, just as something that may be more viable for them in terms of playing next season. Uh, because, you know, leaving the game entirely uh, will will be difficult for them. You know, the XFLs had to shut down because of this. Uh, you know, the AAF didn't survive last year. So there aren't necessarily a lot of alternative options for them either. Uh, so, you know, obviously you still hold out hope, but I think for them, they need to start shifting their focus fairly quickly towards the CFL and finding a way to maximize the opportunities there. Uh, J.J. Molson in particular as a kicker, uh, not to digress too much from the corners conversation, but, you know, he's a guy we just saw another Canadian kicker in Liam Harulahu uh, signed down in the States after playing up here. There's a pretty established, well-established pipeline of specialists uh, developing the CFL and then going down to the NFL. I think that's a guy who should be shifting his focus north of the border fairly quickly, knowing that that still represents an opportunity south of the border for him. Uh, Nathan Rourke has his uh, bona fides. I don't think he would go into the CFL draft with that Canadian quarterback label, would he, Mike? Probably not to the same extent as a guy, you know, like Mike O'Connor, because, you know, Mike, even though he has all of the credentials in the world, you know, from Tennessee to, you know, going down to Florida, to the football super school down there, and then, um, you know, to Penn State, but then he ends up at UBC and maybe gets labeled that way. Um, as opposed to a guy who did play in the NCAA, there are people who still look at that and, level of competition and all that stuff. Um, I, I just know that Michael O'Connor impressed everybody with the Argonauts last year. They're thrilled to, uh, we're still thrilled to have them, obviously. And uh, it was it was great to watch him develop and learn the game at the pro level last year. And, uh, you know, he's got a high skill set. There's no question about that. Nathan Rourke, if he gets the same opportunity to get into a pro camp, either south of the border or north of the border, uh, will have his opportunity to do likewise. But, uh, you know, maybe there was that stigma around Mike O'Connor. I, I know the Argonauts didn't feel that way. And uh, I can tell you when uh, there were a couple of instances last year when during the exhibition games, uh, I found myself uh, in, the, in the press box just sitting next to, um, shall I say, somebody, a talent evaluator, um, 
for two different CFL teams who both brought up how much they like Mike O'Connor uh, without me mentioning his name or seeing him, uh, seeing him there. So, um, you know, Mike O'Connor is a, a gifted player. I want to, I'd love to see Nathan work get a shot up here, down there, just to keep that, you know, momentum going for Canadian kids who want to play quarterback and think that they can play at the next level. And, you know, those opportunities are there. Steve Milton of the Hamilton Spectator uh, did a piece on Nathan Rourke and asked him about the possibility of winning a third Cornish award. And Nathan Rourke took one finger and pointed it in the direction of Chuba Hubbard, took another finger and pointed it in the direction of Chase Claypool. Now, obviously, Neville Gallimore's on the list and Eamon Ogbong Bamiga, uh, the uh, top defensive player of the year at Oklahoma State is uh, also on the list. He was asked about it from a Calgary reporter. He pointed his finger at Chuba Hubbard. Um, is this a question uh, for the Cornish Award at this stage of it just being between Chuba Hubbard and Chase Claypool? I'll throw it to you first, Gord. Uh, I think that that's very, very much the case. I think that's pretty much a fait accompli. I think a better question is, uh, is it set in stone that it's that it's going to be Chuba Hubbard? Is he going to run away with it? I think the answer to that is no. Uh, as spectacular as his season was, um, you know, I, because of the press surrounding him, people may not have realized just how good Chase Claypool's uh, senior year was last fall. Uh, and and he, for me as a voter, uh, that was a a legitimately difficult decision to come to, which of those two guys to pick. So uh, you know, whatever the result is, don't necessarily think. Uh, that it came easy, uh, you know, should it be that Chuba Hubbard wins the award uh, because he's the guy that you've heard more about. Uh, I, I think that there was some merit to both of those guys uh, in voting for them for this award. Mike, your thoughts? Uh, in 2018, I had a really, really, really difficult time slotting one, two, and three on the ballot. Really difficult. Um, this year, I didn't, and that's no disrespect to Claypool or Gallimore or anybody else who played this year, but uh, this was a unique season for a Canadian kid to go out and, and rip up the yardage that he did, and my only question about the results, and maybe I'm wrong on this, uh, but my only question is, is it going to be unanimous or not? Um, and that's no knock on any of the other guys, but Chuba Hubbard's season this year was unique, it was special. It was spectacular from week one on. And uh, just when we thought there might be an opportunity for him to falter a little bit, he did. He just he showed up every week and he was just dynamite. You know, it's got to be mentioned, guys, uh, Chuba on early big boards for next year's NFL draft. Uh, most people have him in the, in the top 15 uh, in the middle of the first round. So, uh, you know, a guy to continue watching for. He is uh, as big of a deal down in the States as he is here in Canada, he is he's a guy that you're going to be watching play football for a long time. Well, guys, we'll hand out the hardware, at least hand it out virtually, on May the 6th on the Canadian Football Hall of Fame website and the Football Canada uh, website. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. And also, we'll do a recap of the CFL draft later this week. CFL draft coming to you uh, on TSN this Thursday at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific, uh, the first couple of rounds, and then as usual, it shifts over to tsn.ca. For everyone on Crown Gridiron Nation, this is Jim Mullen saying just stay at home and keep your distance.